for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Hello and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash and today sits the wind fair to talk about Henry V by William Shakespeare. Although it's actually a very stormy day here in Edinburgh, so the wind's not sitting fair at all. I would hold off on any plans you may have to invade France. First performed in around 1599, Henry V is the victorious conclusion to Shakespeare's second tetralogy of English history plays. We've already looked at Richard II and the two parts of Henry IV that precede it, and yet to come are episodes on the plays afterwards, covering the Wars of the Roses, namely the three parts of Henry VI and Richard III. But these were written much earlier in the playwright's career, so for Shakespeare, today's play represented the end of an enormous eight-play project, working from source material that occupied him for the best part of a decade. And it came at a hinge point in Shakespeare's life. The play is sometimes posited as being the first to be performed in the famous Globe Theatre, though it may instead have been the last to be performed before the move, probably at the Curtain Theatre in Shoreditch. Either way, the Globe was certainly taking shape on the horizon, and the prologue of the play contains a famous reference to this wooden O, perhaps added in a later edit for a globe run, although Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, had performed in other circular theatres, such as the theatre, also in Shoreditch. It was the timbers of this theatre that were dismantled, rifled across the bankside, and used in the construction of the globe. Shakespeare's star was on the rise, and his new position as shareholder of the globe would inaugurate a stunning run of plays. Following Henry V, comes the triumphal march of Julius Caesar, As You Like It, and Hamlet, incredibly all of which were written within a year or so of one another. But first he concluded his grand English history sequence, with a story his audiences would know well. Henry V's famous victories had already proved a hit on stage in the 1580s, and Shakespeare had built Henry up in his own previous plays, showing his youth and coronation. Now it would be safe to assume his audience were anticipating a soaring finale. And on the face of it, that is what they got. Henry V tells the story of the king putting France to the sword and achieving those famous victories at Harfleur and Agincourt, securing himself a French princess into the bargain. But as we will see on today's episode, under closer inspection, Henry V paints a rather ambivalent, even compromising portrait of its monarch. In Henry IV Part II, we left the newly crowned king banishing his old friend Jack Falstaff from his company. And early on in Henry V, we hear of Falstaff's dying in bed, babbling of green fields. The king has killed his heart, mistress quickly tells us, when Falstaff has gone to Arthur's bosom. Meanwhile, the king is being convinced of his claim to the French throne, and incensed by a gift of tennis balls from the Dauphin of France, a mocking dismissal of Henry's youth and naivety. This provokes the king to invasion, a beginning that might recall two works previously discussed on Ear Read This, the alliterative Mort Arthur, which opens with the ambassadors of Rome similarly provoking King Arthur, and Edward III, a play about our Henry's ancestor, who is convinced of his own claim to France and irked by the French obscuring his mother's privilege. Both Edward and Henry's claim opposed the principle of Salic law, which favoured patrilineal or agnatic lines of succession. The law took against would-be kings claiming through female kin, like Edward's mother, Isabella of France, who is the pertinent female relative in both stories. We've met Isabella before as the long-suffering wife of Edward II in Christopher Marlowe's history play. 
Unlike the first three instalments in Shakespeare's Tetralogy, the action of Henry V heads abroad. However, a savour of civil unrest remains. In Act Two, Henry foils an assassination plot by the Earl of Cambridge, Sir Thomas Grey and Lord Scroop. Historically, these three conspired to assassinate the king and replace him with Edmund Mortimer, the Earl of March. It was the Earl himself who revealed the plot to Henry, later taking part in the commission that sent the three conspirators to be beheaded. Once we get to France, we see Henry at the forefront of the action, corralling his troops with a series of speeches as famous and stirring as his victories. But we also see a less romantic view of the war, through the experience of his soldiers, including the remnants of the Eastcheap crew, Bardolph and Pistol, joined by the character of Corporal Nim. Much has been written about Henry's poor soldiers, as well as his barbaric treatment not only of his French prisoners, but his own, most memorably the hanging of his former drinking buddy, Bardolph. This is not the only example of comic fodder of the last play, revisited here with starker results. In Henry IV Part Two, we saw Falstaff conscripting deprived and unfit soldiers, food for powder, as he cheerfully called them. Here, before Henry's victory at Agincourt, the king calls his men a band of brothers, a sentiment missing in action in the aftermath of the battle when he lists the casualties. Edward, the Duke of York, the Earl of Suffolk, Sir Richard Ketley, Davy Gam, Esquire, none else of name. One of the tensions in Henry V is between the testimonies of legend and chronicle. There has long been critical debate on whether the play is pro or anti-Henry, and therefore pro or anti-war. Shakespeare proves typically malleable, and in the 20th century alone, the play has been staged as a damning indictment of the treatment of troops by the upper classes, and elsewhere as a rousing nationalistic call to arms. It leaves the play with a curious and sometimes awkward standing with critics, who admire its poetic achievement, but are embarrassed by the manner of its patriotism. In its presentation of an all-conquering England, the play can still inspire the dreariest kind of snobbery. In his review of a 1986 production, Stanley Wells writes of the English troops hoisting a flag saying fuck the frogs to delighted applause from the audience. Writers like Gerald Gould have tried to defend Shakespeare against the charge of condoning Henry V's actions, saying precisely because Shakespeare was patriotic, he must have felt revolted by Henry's brutal and degrading militarism. The text of the play survives in two versions. There is a heavily truncated quarto from 1600, carrying the title The Chronicle History of Henry V, with his battle fought at Agincourt in France, together with Ancient Pistol. Then comes a much longer version, with a much shorter title, which is the basis for most modern editions of the text. This was the Henry V collected in the first folio of 1623, titled simply The Life of King Henry V. The former appears to be based on a performance copy of the play, whereas the longer folio version is likely taken from the author's own foul papers, in other words, Shakespeare's working draft. There is nothing remarkable about there being discrepancies between quarto and folio versions of Shakespeare plays, but the substantial difference between those of Henry V are extreme, leading some critics to wonder whether the content of this most controversial of the histories, in the words of Edward Berry, had to be heavily censored in order to reach the stage at all. Henry V had one of the shortest first runs of any Shakespeare play, and this has been attributed by James Shapiro to its focus on sensitive contemporary events, which we will look at in more detail very soon. Meanwhile, Victor Kiernan argues that disappointment at the loss of Falstaff must have been the main cause of its unpopularity. Shakespeare had, after all, promised his audience more of Falstaff. In the epilogue to Henry IV Part II, we heard that our humble author will continue the story, with Sir John in it, 
and make you merry with the fair Catherine of France. This is the only time Shakespeare teases what he's working on next, and his failure to deliver on that promise led Dr. Johnson to grumble, let meaner authors learn from this example that it is dangerous to sell the bear which is not yet hunted, to promise the public what they have not yet written. If a version of the play closer to the folio's copy was staged first, it may help to explain why the play had a short run. Henry was still considered a hero in Elizabethan times. C.W.R.D. Mosley tells us that when the son of James I, Henry the Prince of Wales, died in 1612, the profusion of elegies on the loss of that young man constantly compare him with the admired heroes of the past, like King Arthur, Achilles, Mars, Alexander, the Black Prince, and Henry V. Henry was already familiar to theatre-goers as the misbehaving national champion in that earlier play, The Famous Victories of Henry V. However, in the folio text, Shakespeare's version of the king is frequently undermined. As Anne Cagey writes, the prologue to Henry V draws on the climate of expectation built up over the preceding seven plays. However, the ensuing depiction of Henry V and his French campaign is considerably more complex and disquieting than may have been anticipated of a ruler so long the object of nostalgic idealisation. For the long version of Henry V awakens remembrance of an English legend in such a way as to expose how such national legends are perfected by reminding us of what we must forget to remember if they are to be sustained. It is notable that between the two versions of the play, the chorus is cut completely, as is any material that casts a shadow on Henry's character, including, as K.G. writes, any hint of financial motive for the interpretation of the Salic law, and the bishop's eagerness to sanction and fund Henry's war. Any suggestion that Henry is responsible for Falstaff's death, his savage threats to the townspeople of Harfleur, and any mention of the hanging of Bardolf. So perhaps it was a longer, less flattering version of Henry V that received a short run in 1599, before it was hastily cleaned up and in the process retrofitted with a nod to Shakespeare's newly completed theatre. Today on Eerie This we will discuss the play's complex portrait of Henry V, how critics have interpreted its stance on nationalism and just war, and what it's like to perform Henry V in the modern day. And I am delighted to be joined to do so by actor and singer Aaron Sidwell, Aaron has appeared on stage and screen, recently playing Henry V in a production for the Barn Theatre in Sirencester. The entire performance is online and linked in the episode description box below, as is the YouTube series Aaron helped create throughout last year's lockdown, Bard from the Barn, in which speeches from Shakespeare are given their own mini-productions. When I spoke to Aaron last July, he was about to release the second series of Bard from the Barn, and now there is a third. To hear more about it and Aaron's experience playing Henry, tune back in tomorrow for an extended interview. I highly recommend in the meantime checking out the Barnes YouTube page, where you'll find not only these speeches and the full performance of Henry V, but lots of podcasts and behind-the-scenes content. And I was struck by something Aaron said in one video conversation with the Barnes artistic director Ewan Williams. Aaron described his Henry as being an unsure king, and I started out by asking him how he came to that interpretation. I think to start with the fact that he leans very much on his advisors, mm. um, whether it's his decision to go to war or whether it is his decision towards the end when it comes to Catherine. I think he's 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 very much advised, and I think it's because he knows what he wants to do. And in those incident in in those incidents, he he tempers himself. Mm. I think where you see his truest nature 
is in the very emotional side of him. And I think that you see that at the gates of half fleur. Mm -hmm. And I think that you see that with the, in our production, it was a confrontation between himself and constable. And I think usually it is just a messenger. And that happens two or three times where a messenger comes into the camp and he, what's the word? He loses the formality of a king talking to a messenger and he very much lowers himself in an emotional standing whether it's that he you know he stands there and says um tell her we will come on you know we're not we're not going anywhere yep we're depleted yep we're, and he really admits you know <laughs> he really admits to this um adversary that um we're really not in the best position at all it makes perfect sense for you to attack us right now but we're going to stand our ground anyway you know i think that emotion really shows through and i think where again we see the emotion of him is when the tennis balls are, are, are thrown his way and and he he doesn't and this is what Shakespeare does so well he doesn't just kind of go oh okay I see the Dauphin's game well tell him we're going to come to war mm. you know he really ramps it up and 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 says says words like you know men are merriest when they are from home and it's a real that's a, such a threat you know it's it's we're going to come and do some pretty awful things because mm. we're not at home, you know, we're in your turf. And, and so I think his, it, it's that where you see the, the really unsure nature of him, where you see the really sure nature of him is in all his famous speeches, mm. you know, in the St. Crispin's day speech or in the um, once more into the breach speech. This is, this is where he is. How, and, and where, um, my director how where we had this discussion we we broke him down into three different people and we broke him down into henry harry and how mm. and they were three very definitive people in that time and he would constantly change and fluctuate who he was dependent on his situation and i think in situations like once more into the breach and situations like the saint crispin's day speech he's that perfect blend and he's harry in those moments you know he can he can still hold command, but he can also take every man there with him. Mm. And he's the difference between those moments and him, you know, losing his head and saying to all of his men to execute every prisoner they have, a very, very fluctuating, you know, situations. And I think with a lot of other kings in, in, in Shakespeare's play, plays, you see them being one thing or the other. And I don't think that he is ever truly one thing or the other. I think that he is just, he's so human. Mm. He's so, so, so human. And I love that about him. And I think it's what makes him as appealing as Hamlet and as appealing as, because with Macbeth, he loses his humanity the longer the play goes on. You know, there's that great line of, um, I dare do all that may become a man who dares do more is none. And I always took that as a, as a line of, you know, I, I, nobody would do more things than me. But actually, it's the idea of who dares do more is none means that whoever would do more than what a human would do is no longer human. Mm. And so that's an idea that creeps him in at best that he loses his humanity as he goes on. And I think that with, with, with Henry, he gains humanity by becoming king. You know, he, he's, he's very you know, superhuman as Prince Hal because he has no responsibilities and, and no cares and no, you know, 
no worries in the world really mm. and then he becomes king and he has to shoulder all of that whilst maintaining who he is and you just really see his humanity so i think that's what i always played around with and i played around with the idea that what would i do if i was king and i think that i i, I don't know that i could ever condemn the choices that he makes in the play because i think they're so they're so human and i would like to think that i would still be a human if i was the leader and i think at a time like this you know we were talking about it a year ago we were mm. enthralled in brexit and we had theresa may at the time and it was clear that she was so wobbly um and just it, we really lacked leadership and i think through this coronavirus we've really lacked leadership and i think that what what henry would have done being that kind of leader is he would have led doesn't mean that he would have made all the right calls and all the right decisions and 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 done the right things but he would have led and i think that the unsureness in him is the humanity in him mm. uh, that i think we all possess we've seen those modulations between hal harry and henry in full show in the two parts of henry the 4th in our episodes on those plays, we talked about the prince's linguistic flexibility, speaking verse with his father at the king in one scene before tousling his hair and his accent in the next for a prosy drinking session in Eastcheap. Shakespeare had relative freedom with the young future king. The legend of his misspent youth was a popular tradition, but there was little in the way of documentary detail, more gestured at in character sketches and scraps, such as this from essayist Nathan Drake. Henry was fond of war and low company, we know little else of him. He was careless, dissolute and ambitious, idle or doing mischief. In private, he seemed to have no idea of the common decencies of life, which he subjected to a kind of regal licence. In public affairs, he seemed to have no idea of any rule of right or wrong, but brute force, glossed over with a little religious hypocrisy and archiepiscopal advice. However, upon taking the throne, Henry assumes his official self, and in so doing, enters the historical spotlight, potentially banishing not only Falstaff, but Hal and Harry as well. If I refer to these as different sides to Henry, I don't mean that to sound pathological, though it is interesting to note how many actors go down that route and perform the role as Henry and alter ego. But Shakespeare enjoyed creating characters who themselves play parts, and they are by no means always villainous characters. For Henry to play many parts makes perfect sense. To do so profits him as a bright, young, fun-seeking prince over whom official life hangs like a base, contagious cloud. It also makes perfect sense for Shakespeare as a way of negotiating his source material and having the historical future King of England steal into the margins to commit robberies with Falstaff. But after Henry IV was dead, Shakespeare had some obligation to follow not only the chronicles, but the popular knowledge of what came next for Hal an abrupt transformation from wild living youth to mature and pious king. Shakespeare predicted the dramatic dilemma lying in store. Perhaps he was safeguarding himself when he has Hal in Henry IV Part I forewarn the audience that his reformation will come as unexpected, that he will redeem time when men think least he will. Sure enough, in the first scene of Henry V, the Archbishop of Canterbury comments that never came reformation in a flood nor never hydra-headed willfulness so soon did lose his seat, and all at once, as in this king. Hydra-headed recalls something we have heard before. At the Battle of Shrewsbury in Henry IV Part I, the Earl of Douglas, fighting with the Percys, is confounded by multiple knights wearing the armour of the king. Another king, he shouts. They grow like hydra's heads. In times of debatable lineage and usurpation, they most certainly do. The line of succession is never as clear-cut as chivalric men like the Douglas might wish. 
but to describe Henry himself as hydra-headed gives us the impression of a formerly protean character who is seemingly cohered into the sudden scholar the Archbishop clearly approves of. One person who doesn't is E.M.W. Tilliard, who described Shakespeare's obligation to his source material as a hopeless situation, one that the playwright came to terms with by jettisoning the character he had created and substituting one which, though lacking all consistency, satisfied the requirements both of the chroniclers and of popular tradition. No wonder, grumbles Tilliard, if the play constructed around him shows a great falling off in quality. The change baffled Dr Johnson, who couldn't think why Shakespeare now gives the king nearly such a character as he made him formally ridicule in Percy. Percy, Hotspur, you might remember, was the headstrong son of Northumberland, who Henry mocked, killed, but also mourned, showing that great heart, fair rights of tenderness. Hotspur was Henry's rival, but lacked the latter's patience and cunning, and what made Hotspur a figure of fun was his nostalgic chivalric ideals, in a society where the club of knighthood had degraded so far as to admit men like Falstaff. Hotspur loses his life thanks to his intractable trust in an old world, whereas Henry is a man of the new one, a talented actor, ready to assume the role of king, but only at the right moment. In fact, some have argued that Henry becomes so accomplished in playing roles that he has effectively erased his authentic self altogether. As critic Una Ellis Firmer writes, it is in vain that we look for the personality of Henry behind the king, there is nothing else there. I'm not sure I entirely agree with this. It is true that Henry in this play is much more regal and official sounding, more like his father or even Hotspur than the impish and conniving prince of the last two plays. But that very subsuming of his personality into an official instrument is dramatically interesting. We get to see a character who has had all the freedom and privilege of a secondary royal, a kind of demigod who has behaved how he likes, suddenly restrained by his promotion to king. And that's why I think among Shakespeare title parts, Henry V presents a particular challenge to actors like Aaron. The easiest way to approach Henry, it seems to me, is to play him in all three plays, in order for the contrast of his behaviour in Henry V to pay off. If you watch film versions of Henry V on its own, it's noticeable how frequently the filmmakers depend on inserting flashbacks to Henry IV in order to show what a changed man the king is. But I think we can still see the personality of Henry behind the king, frustrated at times, trapped, and buzzing with rage like a wasp in a pint glass. His fury at both the Dauphin of France and the nobles who attempt to assassinate him is revealing, if quite understandable. For instance, on receiving the tennis balls and reading them correctly as the Dauphin mocking his misspent youth, Henry replies, We understand him well, how he comes o'er us with our wilder days, not measuring what use we made of them. Here he expresses what he has previously shared in soliloquy, that despite appearances, he was not in fact misspending his youth, and that he knew exactly what he was doing. This he divulged only to us, the audience. But here it is flaunted in front of his court and the French ambassador, an outburst that seems uncharacteristically unguarded. Informed of the assassination plot hatched by Cambridge, Grey and Scroop, Henry allows them into his presence, first toying with them before exploding with rage. What shall I say to thee, Lord Scroop, thou cruel, ingrateful, savage and inhuman creature? Thou that didst bear the key of all my counsels, that knewst the very bottom of my soul, that almost mightst have coined me into gold, wouldst thou have practised on me for thy use. May it be possible that foreign hire could out of thee extract one spark of evil that might annoy my finger. Do we really believe that Lord Scroop knows the very bottom of Henry's soul? Not even Falstaff knew that, 
and Scroop is in the play for all of one scene. This one. Henry's apoplexy verges on hysteria. It is the hysteria of a cunning young king who cannot bear the idea of someone even thinking they might have outplayed him. I think we see the personality of the king revealed even in his denials of it. Let's look now at his so-called wooing of Kate at the end of the play, which really is a masterclass in manipulation and grooming. Before God, Kate, he says, I cannot look greenly nor gasp out my eloquence, nor have I no cunning in protestation, only downright oaths, which I never use till urged, nor never break for urging. If thou canst love a fellow of this temper, Kate, whose face is not worth sunburning, that never looks in his glass for love of anything he sees there, let thine eye be thy cook. Now, to be fair, I don't think we've seen Henry adoring himself in the mirror much, but every single other word of that is a lie. Henry, seeing that the princess is a beginner in the English language, transforms himself accordingly and makes himself appear a simple English king. So plain a king, he says, she will think he sold his farm to buy a crown. He has no talent for words himself, he goes on. He cannot mince it in love. If only he could win a lady at leapfrog or vaulting into the saddle in full armour. Henry's lies are so downright that the scene borders on dark comedy, broken by a moment in which he loses patience and lets out a little touch of Harry. Canst thou love me? he asks. I cannot tell, says Catherine. Can any of your neighbours tell, Kate? I'll ask them. Come, I know thou lovest me, and at night when you come into your closet, you'll question this gentlewoman about me. And I know, Kate, you will to her dispraise those parts in me that you love with your heart. Henry's arrogance here is wild, but the worst of it is, we know he'll get what he wants. When he says he knows Kate loves him, we remember how right he was two plays ago, when he said sweepingly, I know you all. Presenting himself to Kate as a simple soldier, he says, Beshrew my father's ambition. He was thinking of civil wars when he got me. Therefore was I created with a stubborn outside, with an aspect of iron, that when I come to woo ladies, I fright them. Another howler of an ironic lie here. As we have seen, Henry learned from his father to be just the opposite of iron, to be changeable in appearance and flexible in his language. Never does Henry tell a bigger lie than when he says, our tongue is rough and my condition is not smooth. Personally, I read Henry V as a remarkably clever, ambitious and self-aware young man, who, a bit like Charles Highway in the Rachel Papers, is unusually clinical about getting the most out of each phase in his life. They are both the kind to draw up a campaign of objectives at the age of 12, write themselves a little roadmap out of youth, and then set about brutally achieving their goals. We've all been to school with people like this, and while most of us feel stunned and perplexed at the fact of age that has happened to us, these people were seemingly made aware of the whole scam well ahead of time. Henry knew that upon his father's death, some of life's privileges would disappear, and so he has made hay while he could, misbehaving, drinking, fraternising with commoners, learning even as he indulges. Again, in contrast to Falstaff, when it comes to indulging, Henry knows he can stop at any time. I'm not claiming that as a correct reading, and certainly not that it's the most dramatically interesting, but what fascinates me about watching Henry V performed is the spectacle of an intelligence caged by the very position that empowers him. It's interesting to watch actors make emotional sense of that, what Norman Rabkin calls the conflict between the private selves with which we are born and the public selves we must become. The three Henriad plays dramatise this conflict, feeding our suspicion, as Rabkin says, that authority figures must have traded away their inwardness for the sake of power. 
I wouldn't say Henry had quite traded away his inwardness, but taking power has certainly stifled it. Instead of soliloquies, we have public speeches. Henry must now speak not only for his physical self, but his official self, his nation. For government, as Exeter says, though high and low and lower, put into parts doth keep in one consent, congreeing in a full and natural close, like music. Henry, formerly the prince whose musical range stretched from the highest rank to the bass string of humility, must now remain consistent, his most memorable music taking the form of rousing and famous speeches. But even here we can detect his personality coming through. What other king than Henry would advise his troops to imitate the action of the tiger, stiffen the sinews, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favoured rage? enjoying what you've heard so far why not consider becoming a patron of the podcast which enables you to access exclusive bonus episodes of ear read this including shows on people like raymond chandler robert louis stevenson and ovid to sign up simply visit patreon.com slash ear read this now on with the show so we're talking about his uh, his rhetoric when it comes to those famous speech speeches is their fame a bit difficult? Is it difficult to get away from certain either famous performances or just the very fame of the of the speeches themselves, the fact that you know most people are going to be able to recognise that? I think for me, I would still consider myself a huge novice when it comes to Shakespeare. But I think particularly at that time, uh, one of the things that is uh, quite interesting about me as a, as a person, but also as, as an actor, <laughs> is that I'm... Um, I'm very, uh, I will just throw myself into a situation and go, I'll, I'll learn as I get there. Mm. And really looking back on it, the, the faith that was shown in me by not just Hal, but also uh, you and Lewis at the barn was that I was up against people for this role who had played Hamlet at the Globe. Mm. And I think what what they liked about me, I, I consider myself very hardworking, but I think what they liked about me is that I didn't come in with any real kind of um, weight on my shoulders with these speeches that I did just kind of come in and go, this is what the language is telling me. And so this is what you're going to get and what you might want to to hone through the performance. You're going to have to do that. It's not all here yet. And I think that that can be hugely beneficial. Um, You know, touching on the, the online series that I've produced recently, we maybe had five out of 35 who really had any kind of deep knowledge of Shakespeare. Mm. And what we got was just a load of actors just really looking at what the text was telling them and how they could relate it to now. And I think with, with a speech like once more onto the breach, it's very simple when you look at it Mm. really and I would think about it as it's it's the FA Cup final and with with three nil down. What am I what am I telling? How how are you motivating your players to go back out there and and have any kind of uh, resolve? And and I mean this is you know these aren't unknown circumstances. Liverpool won the Champions League from three nil down at half time. Like it it happens. How? How did how did it, how do they do that against one of the greatest Italian teams of all time? Like you know, it's it's mental. So we really looked at 
the psychology of, of his communication skills at moments like that, rather than me kind of shouldering the responsibility of other actors. But also, I'm very new age when it comes to, to Shakespeare. I, 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 I see a lot that I don't like. And even in someone like, you know, Sir Kenneth Branagh, like, who's, who's just incredible. Like, you know, there's no disputing him. He's, he's fantastic. But, you know, I've watched his Hamlet and I didn't like it. But that's because it didn't, I it couldn't connect to it at all. I couldn't particularly connect to his Henry V either. The one performance that I did watch that I would encourage everybody to watch, uh, not just because of the quality of the performance of, of Henry, but also the quality of the performance of the, of the play as a whole, was the Globes production with Jamie Parker as, mm. as, as Henry. I just got what he was trying to say. I just got who he was trying to be. Um, I got what the piece was trying to do. You know, Hiddleston, I, I could get on board with his with his Prince Hal, I could not get on board with Henry V. I, I, again, I just couldn't, I could not connect to it. And um, that's interesting. And I think that there is, there is a huge, huge weight with this stuff. But for me, I just, I wanted to, I wanted to speak to the audience members that were there. And also, you know, I just clicked with Hal, our director. Mm. We, we just had the same brain. We just had the same approach. We just had the same inspirations for all of this stuff and so he, he could just plant a really simple idea in my head and it would grow and it would grow and grow and grow and grow and grow and you know the thing that he would always say to me is in a soliloquy or in a speech if you're asking a question ask the question I want an answer from your question whether you answer the question is irrelevant you, you you're asking it because you want to make an impact on so you really got to put it there and you've really got to pick someone and give it to them and you know like make sure that that person leaves asking the same question themselves and I think because we were dealing in that kind of detail I didn't really have time to think about the the level of it I remember on press night sitting down in the morning and I had, a, I had the most incredible digs that the theatre had provided. We lived on this little holiday housing complex with big lakes and it was gorgeous weather at the time. And, and I was living with a good friend of mine who I've known for eight years and we were doing this play together. And I sat there and I was having a coffee and I just thought, Oh, in front of the press tonight, this is, this is, this is actually happening. And then, and then I suddenly thought about, you know, Laurence Olivier and the fact that this was the first play that was ever done at the New Globe and it was Mark Rylance who played the role and um, and all the just incredible names and I suddenly just felt insanely privileged mm. to be able to just have a go do you know what I mean yeah, like yeah. just have a go and um, there's that great moment in with Nail and I where they talk about you know the um, coming to terms with the fact that they would never play the Dane, <laughs> yeah. and it was just and, it, and it's one of those moments you go, I never want to deal with that. Like I, I, I want to wherever I am, yeah. whether I'm in a park doing it or whether I'm you know with the RSC doing it, I I want to I want to play that role at some point, and I will feel immensely privileged to have done that. And I think I think that's the way that I would approach any role rather than allowing the um, the idea of, of who has come before and where they've been yeah. to uh, to overwhelm me, I think. But that's just part of the 
ego and arrogance that I, I think makes me uh, mentally successful in this industry, whether I'm, you know, physically successful or whether I'm somebody else's idea of success. I think that what makes me mentally successful in this industry is that I can, I, I can come to terms with, with that stuff and, and, uh, and, it, and accept that the privilege alone is enough rather than the setting mm. being enough, the privilege alone of, of, of playing Henry. And so I just, I'm eternally grateful to the barn and I'm eternally grateful to Hal because it, it is the single biggest challenge I've had to date, bar none. Shakespeare's source material for Henry V included a few old favourites, Plutarch's Lives, The Chronicles of Hollinshed, and Samuel Daniel's Civil Wars. He also used material from the famous victories of Henry V, which according to James Shapiro, Shakespeare ransacked for episodes lifting everything from the highway robbery scene that opens the first part of Henry IV to the wooing of Kate that ends Henry V. And he had done so from memory, for the anonymous play was only belatedly published in 1598. The famous victories of Henry V had been performed since the 1580s by the Queen's men. It is written in knockabout prose, and the reasons for its popularity are not hard to recognise. It is a jolly, rude, light-hearted romp, breezily unhistorical, and full of national pride. In 1592, Thomas Nash wrote of this play, saying, What a glorious thing it is to have Henry V represented on the stage, leading the French king prisoner and forcing both him and the Dauphin to swear fealty. This Henry is a much simpler creation. Instead of the complicated relationship between Henry IV and his son that Shakespeare presents, in the famous victories, the prince declares happily, The breath shall be no sooner out of his mouth, but I will clap the crown on my head. Arhal claps the crown on his head before the breath is completely out of his father's mouth, but his feelings towards his father are much more conflicted. Even though The Famous Victories is an earlier play, it reads like a reduced Shakespeare Company production, sprinting through the plot of three plays without pausing for breath. Though Shakespeare apparently recalled The Famous Victories from memory, other texts, such as Hollinshed, he had close at hand. And for an example of how close, here's a section of Hollinshed concerning Salic law. Hugh Capet also, who usurped the crown upon Charles, Duke of Lorraine, the sole heir male of the line and stock of Charles the Great, to make his title seem true and appear good, though indeed it was stark naught, conveyed himself as heir to the Lady Lingard, daughter to King Charlemagne, son to Louis the Emperor, that was son to Charles the Great. And here's the same matter rendered in Shakespeare's verse. Hugh Capet also, who usurped the crown of Charles the Duke of Lorraine, sole heir male of the true line and stock of Charles the Great, to find his title with some shows of truth, though in pure truth it was corrupt and naught, conveyed himself as heir to the Lady Lingard, daughter to Charlemagne, who was the son of Charles the Great. Even for Shakespeare, this is pretty liberal plagiarism, and by way of explaining it, some critics have speculated that he was writing at speed. Tilliard comments on the unevenness and flatness of the play's verse, and he's disappointed to see the cosmic law of Richard II and Henry IV neglected. Then there is the ending of Henry V, which is often criticised as being tacked on, causing some critics to wonder why the play didn't end in the aftermath at Agincourt, so we could lose the hasty and abrupt wooing of Kate. Adding to the suggestion of Shakespeare writing in a rush are textual similarities to a sermon given by Lancelot Andrews in March 1599. The sermon was given on the eve of the Earl of Essex expedition to quell an Irish rebellion, in his book, 1599, James Shapiro examines the commonalities between Andrew's sermon and Henry V, citing in particular the theological justification for war and the need for those who go off to war to purge themselves of sin. Shapiro reminds us that Shakespeare lived in an oral culture, 
and though we have the likes of Hollinshed and Plutarch to point to for written sources, it is likely that the majority of them are lost on the air. After imagining Shakespeare in attendance at Andrew's sermon, Shapiro leaves us with a portrait of the playwright returning to London with Andrew's cadences ringing in his ears and a few precious weeks to finish his play. Um, when you're reading verse, and I speak as a reader, not as a, a reader out loud, you can sink into the rhythm so that your reading comes a little bit complacent. You depend on it a bit too much in the same way that I, I think you can read verse out loud and not really know what you're talking about and it will sound good because yes. the structure is there to support you. You don't need to understand it. Which is very similar to music. Yeah. Very, very similar to music that we still have. You know, we, we oh, I, I, I struggle when I, when I, you know, put on kind of pop music now and just, I don't think there's any connection between the artist and the words, mm. but then you, you listen to someone as controversial a figure as he, as he now is, Michael Jackson, you listen to him and he just, takes you on a journey every song you just believe every single word that he is telling you is there for a reason and it was chosen for that reason and that's what makes him or made him the king of pop mm. and what made his other contemporaries not quite on the same you know think about someone like prince who is you know undeniably brilliant he wasn't quite there in terms of his storytelling as someone like Michael Jackson was. And that's and that I think fundamentally was the difference because songs are just these new ways of, of writing verse. And I teach Shakespeare a lot and I teach it to dancers quite a lot, you know. Mm. And, you know, they just balk at it. And I just kind of go, well, you sing, you all sing, right? You all tell stories. And we get this, you know, acting through song seminars, which do my bloody head in. Because you just go, well, you, of course, you. everybody should be acting through song because you're telling a story still, whether it's about Billie Jean or whether it's about Romeo and Juliet. Like you're telling a story from beginning to end. You're telling a story. And I think that somewhere along the line that's got a little bit lost in translation but we still appreciate the ones that do it right. In the course of our episodes on these history plays, we've seen Shakespeare give the body politic a physical application. Imagining an earth that eats its own children, that bleeds, and fertilised with blood, gives birth to bodies like that of Falstaff, an obscene growth in a starved age, who in turn lards the earth when he walks. As Falstaff fattened, the old king wizened and died. In this play, we hear how the death of Henry IV affected his son. The breath no sooner left his father's body, but that his wildness, mortified in him, seemed to die too. Yea, at that very moment, consideration like an angel came and whipped the offending Adam out of him, leaving his body as a paradise. Purged, in other words, by the death of his father and the de facto death of Falstaff. A useful conceit, given Henry's historically rapid transformation, but what's more interesting is the image of Henry's body being left a paradise. After the rot that began with Richard II, it has felt as if England has lost its way in an intricate blood debt. A growing pile of revenges and curses, tangling into civil war, turning the body politic into a gory spectacle of cannibalistic stagnation as the country rends itself apart. As the body politic sickened, so did the body of its monarch. But now, quick as a whip, the body of its new king is purified. England, once a garden, but run by Richard like a tenement farm, is returned to its former idyllic splendour. Or so everybody wishes. For while Henry's physical body doesn't deteriorate like his father's, the imagery of nations as bodies remains in this play. And now, as the action moves abroad, that body has to stretch. 
When Henry says his activities in France will tempt those pilfering borders the Scots to attack, Exeter advises that while the armoured hand doth fight abroad, the advised head defends itself at home. Westmoreland and Canterbury urge the king on, demonstrating his subjects' hunger for war by saying their hearts have marched ahead to France. Oh, let their bodies follow, pleads Canterbury, with blood and sword and fire to win your right. There is something lingeringly unpleasant about this. It strikes me as a gruesome way of expressing Henry's divine right and his nation's racial superiority. The fields of France have, as it were, already been inseminated by English blood. Reinforcing the argument, Canterbury advises Henry to invoke his great-grandsire's warlike spirit, for Edward had, of course, on a French hill, stood smiling to behold his lion's whelp, the Black Prince, forage in blood of French nobility. And Henry isn't the only royal sending body parts across the Channel. He receives, after all, the delivery of the Dauphin's balls. Tennis balls, to be sure, but any balls served up by that ace of the bawdy pun Shakespeare are bound to be playing doubles. Once the balls are delivered, Henry volleys back. Tell the pleasant prince this mock of his hath turned his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them. For many a thousand widows shall this his mock mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down, and some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have cause to curse the Dauphin's scorn. On the face of it, this is a simple militaristic threat. I will reply to tennis balls with cannonballs and cripple your nation. But notice within that how Henry's language has effectively unseeded the Dauphin's balls. He castrates him, turns his balls to gunstones, and then building on that seems to flaunt his own superior virility, showing how even people ungotten and unborn will remember the wasteful vengeance of the English. Maybe a stretch, but soon we'll look at the rhetoric of sexual potency in the play and how gendered its language of conquest becomes. When we see the French king, he is fearful of the English, recalling the memorable shame of Cressy, the mangling hands of the Black Prince and Edward III. The French balls, it seems, are writing cheques their hearts can't cash. In contrast, Henry makes pains to align his will with the will of the nation. Throughout the play, he drives his people on and presents himself as the emblematic hero they desire. As Una Ellis Firmer writes, Henry V has indeed transformed himself into a public figure. The most forbidding thing about him is the completeness with which this has been done. He is solid and flawless. There is no attribute in him that is not part of this figure, no desire, no interest, no habit even, that is not harmonised with it. He is never off the platform. Even when alone in a moment of weariness and intense anxiety, he sees with absolute clearness the futility of privilege and the burden of responsibility, he still argues his case in general terms, a king's life weighed against a peasant's, peasant against king. In holding his own life against a peasant's, Henry recalls the words of his archbishop, who earlier described an ideal society of bees. The long speech, borrowing from Thomas Eliot's The Governor, contains a foreshadowing of Agincourt. Bees, the archbishop says, to one consent may work contrariously, as many arrows lucid several ways come to one mark. So may a thousand actions, once afoot, end in one purpose. But even bees have a monarchy, a king no less, as it was then believed. Only in 1609 did it become widely known that beehives were ruled by a queen. With his hive behind him, Henry's body swells to a fearsome size. Queen Isabel, mother of Catherine, says to Henry that turned upon the French, his eyes have been the fatal balls of murdering basilisks. 
which must be gratifying for Henry to hear, as he earlier promised to dazzle all the eyes of France and strike the Dauphin blind to look on him. His eyes are tools of judgment and destruction. Taunting those men who conspired to kill him, Henry asks, If he will not wink at little faults, how shall we stretch our eye when capital crimes, chewed, swallowed and digested, appear before us? Here, eyes and guts recall the language of the previous plays, giving a sense that the conspirator's crime has polluted the body of the nation. When walking disguised among his own men before the Battle of Agincourt, Henry himself is challenged with similar imagery. A soldier called Williams tells him that if the cause of war be not good, the king himself hath a heavy reckoning to make. When all those legs and arms and heads chopped off in battle shall join together at the latter day, and cry all, we died at such a place, some swearing, some crying for a surgeon, some upon their wives left poor behind them, some upon the debts they owe, some upon the children rawly left. I am afeard there are few die well that die in a battle. But this language Williams uses is itself chewed, swallowed and digested. Witness how Henry transforms it to meet his own ends. As two scenes later, he gives his famous St Crispian's Day speech, in which he pictures his soldiers as future veterans, not a mass of arms and legs chopped off, but stripping their sleeves, showing their scars, and saying, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. And so Henry makes a virtue of bodily sacrifice, sanitising the stark words of Williams and absolving himself of responsibility. His soldiers are, after all, merely instruments of the hive. These plays were often performed as the sort of Henriad or um, mm. as the Hollow Crown on TV, that kind of thing. Um, and productions have lent into that with the Henry VI plays as well, of sort of mushing them together. And the curve for Henry is often friendship with Falstaff, cutting his ties, becoming a king. Um, Falstaff dies at the start of Henry V. Um, when it's performed in in isolation, how important is it to track back to his friendship? Or do you, I mean, I suppose it, it depends on interpretation. Was it more useful for you to track back to that? Or did you think, no, the play starts when the play starts? I'm working with this text. I interestingly, I say I, we, interestingly approached Falstaff as more of a father and always have approached him as more of a father. I think he was, I mean, yes, to, st to, to start with your question, absolutely, we, you know, I, I track back massively. I should and... say as well, sorry, your, your play did start with burying Henry IV. Um, so there yes, was a bridge. Yes. Um, I realised, yes. but yeah, sorry, carry on. And, and and we did this kind of sequence of going back and seeing Henry slipping slightly into almost remission mm. of, of of kind of going on a big night out and, you know, taking a few things that he shouldn't have taken and drinking a few things that he shouldn't have drunk. And so we saw this kind of um, this part of him. But yeah, it, it was it was hugely important for me to understand what it was in Henry the Fourth that he was so against because he doesn't need to go and do what he did. You know, he doesn't need to go and hang out in the taverns and, and, and spend time with a full star scene as this kind of lovable rogue. He was also a criminal, like, you know, right at the start of Henry the fourth, he's planning on robbing some people. You see Hal's moral compass there, I think in that, he's not okay with that. Like, you know, we're going to trip him up, basically. We're going to trip him up and, you know, remind him and put him in his place and kind of go, this is right and this is wrong. But you also see him 
being reality checked by by full staff quite a lot and you know the the, the wonderful scene in henry the fourth part one where they in the tavern do the uh, impersonation of henry the fourth mm. and how in 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 varying different ways and you really see and there's that great moment of, of full staff saying you know send send away the rest but don't send away jack don't send away jack full staff and and I think that that is absolutely the the moral dilemma for how Harry Henry throughout it, even in Henry the Fifth, in our production, we decided to to see the execution of Bardolph. Mm. We didn't in the play. It's just something that it, it, you're told it's going to happen. You're given the possibility of Pistol turning it around with Fluellen. And then you're told it happened. And in our production, we decided to, okay, Hal had decided that we were going to see that happen. Mm. In rehearsals, when I was presented with who Bardolph was and, and, and the flashback sequence that we were going to have, I said, well, we're missing a trick here if we don't make this a sexual connection between Harry and Bardolph because we had uh, a wonderful female actress in Alicia Charles playing Bardolph. We also had this flat flashback scene. We never see Bardolph a- attracted to or having a relationship with anybody else in that East Cheap um, mm. crew. So why not really add some weight to it now? Why not make it that he's having to execute a former lover or somebody that he still possibly loves? And then you have the implications when it comes to marrying Catherine you know how does he really feel about Catherine like what did he execute his one true love all that way back and and it all ties into full staff it all 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 ties into full staff because full staff was for Henry the father figure that he never really had he'd never had a connection with with Henry the fourth Henry the fourth speaks openly about his desire for um, how to be more like Hotspur, have that drive and ambition and, and aggression. And, and he doesn't want that. But the big question for me all the time, I think, was why does he not want it? And, and it led into the religion and it led into the, the, the idea that they stole the crown. And, and rather than just being a rebellious youth, the idea that he was just deeply uncomfortable with who his real family were, that he went out and tried to find another one, I think is something that we can all relate to. You know, um, whether that's, you know, I remember personally getting to a sort of teenage age and my parents were splitting up and my family dynamic was sort of changing from what it was. The one thing that I really wanted in a, in, in a girlfriend or something at the time was somebody with a pretty tight family unit still that I could go and have Sunday dinners with, like, you know, sub completely subconsciously, but looking back on it now, realizing that that's what that was. And I think that's what he does. These, you know, full staff has many faults. And actually I think that he will always look out for himself first rather than Hal. And I think that as Hal sees that he, he lets go of, of full staff. But I think the other, I think the other guys you know, and Bardolph and, and Pistol and Nim, I, th- I think they run through traffic for him, you know, for, for, for Harry, I, and in a way that the rest of his family wouldn't. And I think he knows that, and I think he sees that, and I think that he finds comfort in those people in a time that he really needs it. And the fascinating thing with him is that when he steps up, he, he does abandon them. 
you know, in a way that he kind of, he has to, because mm. he's now the leader of a country. He can't do what he's doing anymore because people are relying on him. But the way that he does it is, is, is quite callous and quite cold. And by us specifically executing Bardolf on stage and it being Henry that does it, this is a very different proposition to when he executes the three mutineers. Mm. Like, you know, this is, these are people that, his family would have liked him to be tied to have tried to sell him down the river to France because they don't believe in his, in his rule. He can dispose of them. No problem. But when it comes to dealing with Bardolf or dealing with pistol or dealing with, dealing with Nim, you know, I think he feels real shame in what happens to Bardolf. And so when he's confronted with pistol where he's disguised himself, he can't reveal himself. And then pistol says that, you know, the Kings of Borcock, a heart of gold, uh, you know, mm. it, it, that, that, that hurts because he knows that, that that's not an easy thing for Pistol to say because Bardo's been executed under his rule and he's still defending him. He's still yeah. defending him and standing by him to a complete stranger. And, and that's loyalty that he's not necessarily seen in other parts of his camp. And he certainly goes on to not see in parts of his camp. And, and I think that that, all ties into Falstaff. It is all. It all, all comes from his relationship with Falstaff, and so it was vital that we had that coming coming into the into the play and the understanding. And you know, God, if we could have done all three, um, you know, plays, I think we would have. Yeah. <laughs> I really think we would have, and I think that we would have um, not changed things, but I think we would have really seeked to add weight in 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 different areas that maybe wasn't there already, and. And it's um add some literal weight and foul stuff. Yeah, yeah, literal yeah, literal. Oh, well, I always wonder what, you know, who our full staff would be, what he would look like. And um we were always ruminating and always seeking further possibility. And and uh, I I I firmly believe that our journey with, with Henry is not done yet as a mm. creative team. And one of the ideas is, you know, who is full staff? Is he a bit more shrewd? Is he a bit more calculated? Is he a bit more you know, using this relationship to, to, to get where he wants to go. And then maybe we don't quite feel the sympathy for Falstaff that we do uh, in the end. And we understand Henry's position and, and, and purpose because those roadmaps are also there for us in the writing, you know, the, mm. him claiming the, the slaying of, of Hotspur away from, uh, away from Henry and, you know these these little bits are are there and in place and and they're there for you to choose to take or not take and i think that there's certainly fun to be had between the relationship with them that we might not have seen truly represented yet as i mentioned at the top of the episode the elizabethans still held henry v in high regard even though his french dream had long crumbled just as it had for his great grandfather edward iii there was of course a family connection to england's current monarch the Princess Catherine, who Henry weds, later married Owen Tudor, grandfather of Henry VII, himself grandfather to Shakespeare's queen, Elizabeth I. And on the topic of Elizabeth, she is referred to in Henry V as our gracious empress, in a moment containing one of the most direct topical allusions in all of Shakespeare. It comes at the start of Act V, as the chorus is asking the audience to imagine Henry's joyous return to England. Now behold, in the quick forge and working house of thought, how London doth pour out her citizens, the mayor and all his brethren in best sort, like to the senators of the antique Rome, with the plebeians swarming at their heels, go forth and fetch their conquering Caesar in, as by a lower but loving likelihood, 
were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may, from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached on his sword, how many would the peaceful city quit to welcome him? This general is Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, one of the Queen's favourites. His Irish expedition had been the occasion of Lancelot Andrew's sermon in March of 1599, and given that he was to return in failure and disgrace come September, this reference gives us an unusually precise date for the composition of this speech, a window of six or seven months. Elsewhere, Captain Gower mentions a beard of a general's cut, which may refer to a fashion started by Essex for long, square-cut beards. But 1599 was a humiliating year for the Earl. He began it as a man popular with both people and queen, but his campaign in Ireland was a dismal failure, and he didn't do himself any favours when he returned to England against orders, barging into the Queen's chambers before she was dressed. Having been sent to Ireland to crush the rebellion, Essex had instead frittered away time, mismanaged his army, and eventually agreed to a humiliating truce. He then disobeyed Elizabeth's orders by abandoning his post, and he appears to have had a weakness for knighting almost anyone that brought their shoulders within range. Within months of arriving in Ireland, Elizabeth, in the words of her biographer J.E. Neal, sent Essex an express letter, all written with her own hand, absolutely prohibiting him for making another night. Nevertheless, writes Neil, in the months of August and September, Essex dubbed another 38. Upon his return to England, he was put on trial and charged with desertion of duty. He was left without an income, and in 1601 launched an unsuccessful coup, one we have discussed before in connection to Richard II. His followers, you might remember, had Shakespeare's company perform the play on the eve of their rebellion. People had long wondered if Essex would become king, either by marrying Elizabeth or by taking power. When in 1599 John Hayward had dedicated his life of Henry IV to Essex, it may well have been seen as a subtle way of showing support for Essex's usurpation. Essex was hot-headed and unpredictable. He clearly couldn't handle his name being tarnished by inferiors. As his life fell apart, he wrote in despair to his queen, I am gnawed on and torn by the basest creatures upon earth. The prating tavern haunter speaks of me what he lists, the frantic libeller writes of me what he lists. They print me and make me speak to the world, and shortly they will play me upon the stage. He'd have good reason to worry about that. Theatre makers had a macabre and brutal sense of humour. In the famous victories of Henry V, the prince threatens to hang his own friends. And in Shakespeare's play, Captain Fluellen's report of Bardolph being hanged is occasion for yet more jokes about the dead man's swollen nose. One Bardolph, if your majesty know the man, his face is all bubicles and whelks, and knobs, and flames of fire, and his lips blow at his nose, and it is like a coal of fire, sometimes blue and sometimes red, but his nose is executed, and his fire's out. This is a moment that modern productions often cut, or use to silently demonstrate what they regard as Henry's true feelings, which is going against the script, in which Henry's terse response flatly approves of the hanging. That the king might react so blithely to the hanging of a friend is hard to take for some productions, who have to explain it subtextually. Kenneth Branagh, for example, playing Henry in his film version, actually gives the order to hang Bardolph, but only does so through manly tears. Bardolph's hanging was based on a similar story Shakespeare found in the Chronicles, but the wider mistreatment of troops in the play may have had a more contemporary ring in the summer of 1599, as reports came from Ireland of the dismal state of Essex's army. Critics have suggested that in his portrait of the poor soldiers of England, Shakespeare was subtly criticising the impact of royal wars on the common man. Others argue Shakespeare was simply reflecting his times. With the Irish rebellion and continued rivalry with Spain, war was in the air, 
and London would have been full of both recruits-in-waiting and battered veterans. As James Shapiro writes, it wasn't a pro-war play or an anti-war play, but a going-to-war play. I think you're absolutely right with on the importance of questioning why why it is that Henry is not um, is resistant to to kingship. Mm. I thought that I, I earlier in the week watched The King, and I right. I was struck by the fact I don't know if you've seen it, but I was struck by the fact that I've not. They I don't think they asked themselves that question at all. They they. Well, this is why I've not quite watched it. It came out at a very similar time. I think it came out just after um, we had done Henry V. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't quite ready to let go of what we had created mm, yet and start watching somebody else's. But, I mean, I, I think I saw a clip of Robert Pattinson as the Dauphin and it was enough for me. <laughs> I was kind of out at that. Uh, yeah, it's it's a really strange um, one. I mean, there's a, a few strange things. They have to resort to making Henry IV a really sort of evil nasty he's almost like an evil stepmother type figure yeah i think he's i think i think he's what a lot of parents accidentally become and it's imposing your idea of what life should be upon your children and and again like you know when you just think about how long ago this was written mm. and it's there throughout you know really henry the sixth is all about fathers and sons the entire thing is about fathers and sons but particularly the relationship between hal and henry the fourth is is one of just complete and utter and he says to him doesn't he you are i can't remember the exact um the exact phrasing of the line but the way you are now is just like Richard was then. Yeah. You've become everything that I deposed. You've become, and I and I will not leave the crown to another Richard because then everything that I did was all for nothing. Which isn't remotely true, I don't think, for a start. No, it's not. It's not at all. Richard was was very complacent in his rule, mm. and 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 I think you know the fact that the play opens where it does with Richard the Second tells you that the minute he was kind of presented with an actual problem, he didn't really have any kind of solution. It was a, you know, each one was a very, uh, one one was a, was a permanent punishment and one was not a permanent punishment. And there was no, you know, he hadn't really made any kind of decision positively. He'd just kind of taken really vague and, 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 and silly steps. And, you know, we see that in government rules still today. The critic, you know, the critique behind, well, yes, we locked down, but we locked down too late, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's those kind of issues that makes these plays still so relevant and still so um, interesting. And I think that the 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 idea in Henry the Fourth's head at the time is that he's just going to swan into the the the, the, the crown without having the first idea about the difficulty of running the nation. I think you see a very tired man mm. who was never born to be king, was essentially elected king by his peers, and who has realised in the however many years he has been king that this is really tough. This is a really, really tough job. You know, you're constantly just dealing with rebellious lords, you know. <laughs> and, Scottish. Uh, yeah, and, and the, yeah, and the Scot- well, there's the great line that we cut in uh, in in Henry the Fourth because it didn't feel quite as relevant to our production, <laughs> but just of the 
of the um yes you can run off to france but the but the conniving scott will be straight in you know (laughs) it's just it's so outdated now that when you look at it that you just kind of but but that was that was a genuine fear these barbarians to the north and these barbarians to the to the west in wales as well you know these and 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 i think it was just it was a life was a constant headache for henry the fourth and he looked at his son and saw happy-go-lucky silly young man who didn't really understand the weight of the throne and and yeah to imply that he didn't love his son or that he was just uh a, a, yeah an angry old man is 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 so one-dimensional mm. it's so so one-dimensional and i i don't know the point in doing shakespeare if you're approaching character characterization as one-dimensional um because he didn't write one-dimensional characters he wrote even Macbeth, we can sympathise with, mm. you know. Even Richard the Third, we can kind of sympathise. Oh, absolutely! With. Yeah. That's the genius of what of what he created, and what makes him and Tennessee Williams and you know all, 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 all the other Geoffrey Chaucer, these people that we cling on to still, cling on to, and you know when it comes to us battling for culture in the way that we are right now, these are the people that we have still turned to 400 years later in, in a crisis that they faced all that time ago and, and hold up as the shining lights of, of you know, we, you want to lose culture, we're going to lose these guys. And people aren't willing to part with them yet because they're still rote human beings. And I think that that's, the, that's always the fascinating thing when it comes to studying these characters. And I think that Hollywood doesn't write human beings anymore and doesn't quite approach human beings. And that's why we maybe feel that Shakespeare's a little bit out of date when it comes to, you know, education and, mm. and, and because it's not being taught in the right way. It's being taught literature way and it's not being taught in uh, human life skills kind of way, <laughs> which is what drama is. John Dover Wilson wrote in 1947 that Henry V is a play which men of action have been wont silently to admire and literary men, at any rate during the last 130 years, volubly to contemn. But even critics learn something from times like the present. He was writing then, of course, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, during which one of the most famous productions of Henry V was made, the 1944 film version starring Laurence Olivier. It was released within six months of the D-Day landings, and opens with a dedication to the commandos and airborne troops of Great Britain, the spirit of whose ancestors it has been humbly attempted to recapture in some ensuing scenes. The story of Henry V had been revisited during the First World War as well. Arthur Macken wrote a celebrated short story called The Bowman, in which British troops fighting in the trenches are aided by a miraculous appearance of archers who last fought at Agincourt. The story was so popular that apparently soldiers reported seeing similar archers appear during battles on the Western Front. However, Henry V doesn't smoothly fit a World War context. Henry's war was one of conquest, the intended conquest of a future ally, no less. Once more onto the breach might lift the spirits, but how about Henry's command to close the wall up with our English dead? In the wake of the massacres perpetrated by industrialised warfare, lines like that have a grim resonance. Add to that Henry's profound belief in his racial superiority. The words England and English recur over a hundred times in the play, and in contrast to the distinctly feminised French, Henry's people are always presented as lusty and masculine. Jean E. Howard and Phyllis Rackin write, Unlike Shakespeare's earlier history plays, the trappings and ideology of chivalry and hereditary nobility are identified as French and gendered feminine. The decisive Battle of Agincourt, 
is represented as the triumph of a ragged band of Englishmen over a well-equipped French enemy obsessed with accoutrements that mark their place in a hierarchical culture. Snooty but alarmed, the French regard the English as their out-of-control children, given as they are but Norman bastards. Shall a few sprays of us, asks the Dauphin, the emptying of our father's luxury, our scion, put in wild and savage stock, spurt up so suddenly into the clouds and overlook their grafters? Here we see a recurrence of the garden run amok theme begun in Richard II, those mentions of two fast-growing sprays and caterpillars of the Commonwealth. The issue becomes thorny, not to mention incestual, as the Dauphin confesses, Our madams mock us and plainly say our metal is bred out, and they will give their bodies to the lust of English youth to new store France with bastard warriors. A plainly ludicrous thing for the Dauphin to say, never mind France's madams. Henry threatens the French repeatedly with rape, giving them a reminder, as if they needed it, of how Edward III's soldiers behaved the last time the English tried to take France. What is to me, Henry asks the French, when you yourselves are cause if your pure maidens fall into the hand of hot and forcing violation? On Shakespeare's stage, the tiring horse that had doubled as the walls of Flint Castle, from which Richard II descended, now became the walls of Harfleur. Traditionally, cities were thought of as women, crowned with walls, and Henry's threats from the foot of them carry a resonance of sexual violence. If I begin the battery once again, I will not leave the half-achieved Harfleur till in her ashes she lie buried. The gates of mercy shall be all shut up, and the fleshed soldier, rough and hard of heart, in liberty of bloody hand, shall range with conscience wide as hell, mowing like grass your fresh fair virgins and your flowering infants. According to Anne Cagey, the French peers too conceive of invasion as a form of rape, which, if allowed to proceed unopposed, would reduce them to the degrading status of a pimp who stood cap in hand by the chamber door as a lustful brute raped his fairest daughter. Indeed, the French often seem baffled by the vigour of the English. The constable asks at one point, Is not their clamour foggy, raw and dull, on whom, as in despite, the sun looks pale, killing their fruit with frowns? Can sodden water a drench for serene jades their barley broth, decoct their cold blood to such valiant heat? Some have defended Henry, suggesting that despite his rhetoric, he has no intention of pillaging France. As Peter Saccio writes, France, after all, was his. One does not loot one's own country, nor commit wanton depredations upon people whom one wants to rule as faithful subjects. Henry's repeated and disturbing promises to raid the wombly voltages of France and his enemies' corresponding fear of English virility will, in the fullness of time, have an ironic result. For although Henry will indeed marry a daughter of France, their offspring will not be a wild bastard warrior, but the frail and peace-loving Henry VI. Frenchmen aren't the only ones on the receiving end of national stereotyping. The play contains a miniature portend of a united kingdom, and it's bringing together captains from England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales. James Shapiro writes that in the folio text, stage headings for MacMorris and Jamie substitute for their names their national types, for Shakespeare thought of them less as individuals than as Irish and Scot. The Welsh occupy a middle ground. Flewellyn is first called Flewellyn before he too is reduced to national type, Welsh. In contrast, the Englishman Gower is always called Gower. As characters, they are crudely segregated, but in the play's language, the countries intermingle. 
pistol fumbles the lines of an Irish song, perhaps indicating time spent there as a veteran of the Irish wars. Captain Flewellen tells the king that all the water in the Wye cannot wash your majesty's Welsh blood out of your body. And as Anne Cagey tells us, Gower, though associated with the English poet John Gower, also had a Welsh resonance, being the name of a lordship in South Wales. After its colonisation by English speakers, writes Cagey, the lordship was divided into English and Welsh Gower, a linguistic division that survives to the present day. The English captain can therefore also be viewed as a fully assimilated Welshman. As we have seen, not only Henry, but the madams of France appear to believe that the intermingling of English and French stock will strengthen both countries. Henry includes Catherine in his sexual possessiveness of France, saying to her, I love France so well that I will not part with a village of it. I will have it all mine, and Kate, when France is mine and I am yours, then yours is France and you are mine. Catherine's reply, I cannot tell what is that, prompts James Shapiro to comment, the audience comes to know just how she feels, for Shakespeare invents over a score of new words and phrases in the course of Henry V, including in porn, woomy voltages, portage, surreined, congreting, and nookshotten. The scene in which Henry woos Catherine is described by W.H. Auden as the most brutal scene in Shakespeare. It is cold and calculated, and most shocking is Henry's certainty of success. When Henry tells Catherine, I know thou lovest me, and at night... When you come into your closet, you'll question this gentlewoman about me. And I know, Kate, you will to her dispraise those parts in me that you love with your heart. He is even more right than he knows, for already we have had a scene in which Catherine asks her gentlewoman, Alice, to teach her the English words for parts of the body. What follows is some good old-fashioned filth, as Catherine innocently mispronounces neck as nick, meaning vagina or perhaps anal cleft, ilbo, carrying the slang for vulva, foot, which in Kate's accent sounds like foutre, French for fuck, and her pronunciation of gown, which sounds like the French word for cunt. The scene will no doubt have delighted Elizabethan theatregoers, and as Stanley Wells points out, Shakespeare's confidence that his audience would understand enough French to enjoy it should be enough to warn us against patronising the groundlings. However, the same scene left later critics horrified. Among them, Richard Farmer, who wrote, Every friend to Shakespeare's memory will not easily believe that he was acquainted with the scene between Catherine and the old gentlewoman. Surely he would not have admitted such obscenity and nonsense. The scene achieves something more than obscenity. It prefigures the English conquest of France, and thereby Catherine, by having her translate her own body into Henry's language. When Catherine later tells Henry that, Your Majesty will mock at me, I cannot speak your England, Henry's reply implies national and sexual submission. If you will love me soundly with your French heart, I will be glad to hear you confess it brokenly with your English tongue. The scene has long been criticised, more commonly, though, for being abrupt and weak rather than brutal, as Auden called it. Victor Kiernan describes the whole fifth act as tranquilizingly bland, while Dr Johnson blames Shakespeare's running out of good source material. The truth is that the poet's matter failed him in the fifth act, and he was glad to fill it up with whatever he could get. Not even Shakespeare can write well without a proper subject. It is a vain endeavour for the most skilful hand to cultivate barrenness or to paint upon vacuity. Your answer in broken music, Henry demands of Catherine. Fittingly, the outcome of this hasty, brutal union will indeed cultivate barrenness, in the form of Henry VI, who will quickly lose his father's gains in France and bring about disaster for England. To come back to fathers and sons, there, there's almost three father figures looming over um, 
uh, Henry in this play. There's dead Falstaff, dead Henry the Fourth, and and God. Mm. Uh, again, it was. Would something... I would argue. I would argue Exeter as well at times. Yeah, he really leans on Exeter. Mm. Really leans on Exeter. But yeah, absolutely, his relationship with God is one of them too. I was going to ask about because there's a lot of a lot of talk about his religious rhetoric, and obviously, excuses to invade France had often been made on a religious and as well as lineage grounds. When he actually speaks to God, when he prays, do you see that as an extension of religious rhetoric or or as uh, genuine on his on his part? Because there is an element of bargaining in it. He mentions that he's reburied Richard, mm. so he's paid for that wrong. So give me a win. It could be read that way rather cynically, or I'm wondering if you have a an, an opposite view. Well, he goes, you know, even further with, uh, you know, who um, twice a day their withered hands hold up to pardon blood. You know, he's he's saying I've paid, I built two chantries for Richard, and I employ all these people to pray for the redemption of Richard's soul and for forgiveness for what happened to Richard. And um, I think the the debate when it comes to religion with Henry is a really fascinating one and one that both myself and my friend Joe Milson had completely different views on at exactly the same time because we were playing Henry in two very different productions of Henry V, mm. both modernised, but very different productions and very different approaches, even to the fact that mine was in a building and his was open air. We were completely different ages. You know, um, he was a much older Henry and I was a much, much younger Henry. And we had completely and utterly different views on it. And my view on it was that he is addressing a very religious nation. And I think that when we modernise Shakespeare, it's very important to still understand why certain things were in certain places for the time that they were being written. Whether that was the conversation of killing kings in Macbeth, which is a hugely debatable thing, especially around the time that it, it was written because you had the gunpowder plot written it was happening happened before it kind of made a lot of reason to believe that it inspired Macbeth particularly the killing of a Scottish king because that's who was in rule at the time we had one the playing with fire there and the playing with religion and religion was still such a delicate topic Catholic and Protestant and again when the part you know the whole reason of the gunpowder plot was because they were rounding up people and killing them based on their religion have we really changed in the world all that much arguably not this country may be we are not particularly religious anymore however we still teach it to kids in school because we we want them to accept and take on the morals of it we still have churches we still fund those churches people still go people still go and build community around religion but you look at other you know, you look further fields in other parts of the world, people are still dying because of religion, left, right and centre. Left, right, it's got to be the biggest killer in the world. Like, And so I think the interesting thing with Henry in this is that he, you know, he has these moments. He has these real, real, real moments where I think the one that always sat for me was the, uh, was the, the tennis balls where he, in our production, I pointed a tennis ball straight at Adam, who was playing Constable, you know, and said, we're, we're coming to get you mm. uh, and we are going to win and we are going to beat you because God will, God will uh, make that happen. And so interestingly, what we see now 
in politics a lot is we see promises being made and they get made on the basis of whether it's, you know, we're going to leave the uh, EU and we're going to take the 250 million that we pay to the EU and we're going to give it to the NHS. And when that promise doesn't come to fruition, you point straight at those people and you go, you said, you said we were going to do this. And they go, I did say we were going to do this, but I didn't say how we were going to do this. And so there's all these, with any with any politician, with any speechwriter, when it comes to this stuff, there's always these little loopholes that are put in. And I believe for what was right for our production of Henry V, that God was the perfect loophole for Henry the entire time. It was a justification. It was a, um, a escape clause. It was all, it was all those things that, that a very, very smart politician puts in place so that when they're unable to deliver on certain promises, I think it's fair to say they don't always let us down left, right and centre, but when they don't deliver on certain promises, they can go, oh, but you remember that loophole that I, that I put in place? Yeah, that's, that's the reason why. It's got nothing to do with me. It's the loophole. But I think he then has this moment of, it's all gone a bit Pete Tong. Uh, you know, he, he's been out, he's been out there. He has won every battle that he has been faced with and yet he's been hit by dysentery and his men are just dropping like flies they're dying left right and saying he's losing and losing and losing while winning and there's you know where's the justification in that and then you know france come along and go we've timed this just right the reason we didn't come and impe- you know, come and beat you back at Harfleur is because Harfleur doesn't mean a lot to us. The reason we didn't do this and we didn't do that is because it doesn't mean a lot to us. However, now we have timed it just right so that you're completely depleted and we're going to absolutely just swan in and just get rid of you. And it is a real moment for him of humility and of realising where he, he, he is in the situation that he is in. And he has this great great scene with his soldiers where he's in disguise as harry Leroy, and um and they you know they kind of say to him well you know what does it matter to us if we lose you know they're gonna if we just lay down our weapons they just let us go home and i could go back to my wife and i could do this and do that and and i think he's he completely and utterly humbles himself to anything at that point and i think he by kneeling down as well as a king that's you know such weight in that weight in that kneel down and and pray to somebody and hand over the he is the power holder he has been the power holder since his father died and by kneeling down and accepting that he doesn't actually really have the power in this situation to change it but sees people that are going to die and lose their lives because because of what he's doing he prays and I think that's the first time he genuinely prays and I think it's the first time that we really understand why he was who he was in Henry the fourth part one and two and it's because I think deep down I think he has always believed that there is somebody and something up there looking over the situation and uh, the reason may be that the dysentery was happening and the reason may be that Hotspur rebelled and you know, who knows who he lost in that war, brothers, friends, you know, like we don't know. And, and all the reason that all the other things have kind of gone on in his life is maybe because his dad stole the crown. And again, coming back to the, the idea of modernizing, but understanding what that meant at the time, 
the the chosen with the, the monarchy at the time was viewed as being God's representation on earth. And his father had essentially not only removed God's representation on earth and seated himself in that place, but had also allowed the murder of God's representation on earth to happen under his watch. And that is just a horrendous thing. You know, as far as he's concerned, he's, he is by being a direct descendant, he's damned. And, you know, he's, he's completely so, I think he, in those earlier plays, he tries to remove himself from that because he feels deep discomfort with what happened and doesn't, and doesn't want to be associated with what happened in the people's eyes, in God's eyes, in, in, in any, in anybody's position or area, he just does not want to be associated with, with the choice that his father made. And by kneeling down and, 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 and interestingly, the first words are um, God of battles, steal my soldiers hearts possess them not with fear you know it's this idea of make them powerful again and then you know spare them essentially Mm -hmm. spare them and don't make them be punished for the mistakes that my father made yeah you know and and this is what i've tried to do you know and more will i do and then the acceptance of all that i can do is none you know, since it's gone, it's happened now. What you know, I, I know I can't take back what happened, and I know that no amount of redemption and is ever going to make any kind of difference. But I'll do everything I can, and and I think that that is just there's such power in seeing a king just completely kneeling and just begging, and we you know you see it in 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 Greek um, mythology all the time, you know. Agamemnon forcing everybody the one thing they had to do was just kneel that was the one thing they had to do was just kneel they could keep everything they had and they could you know they could just you know go go under his his governance and his rule but fundamentally he was just going to be the emperor but when I'm here you kneel and nobody was ever willing to do that and so wars happened and the siege of Troy happened. And it was all because of one man's obsession with being the top of the pile and the one that everybody kneeled to. And that's why Henry's wandering into France and trying to get them to. And so the fact that midway through that whole journey, he kneels and then what happens happens, you know, mm. that's power. Like he, And so he gets handed this list and, you know, 25 of his dead and 10,000 of theirs and, and he is suddenly just shaken to his core, I think, of just the power of God. And, you know, it's all wonderful propaganda from Shakespeare of kind of, because those are not the figures at all. <laughs> you know, actual figures reported were something like, you know, 200 to 3,000 or something like that, which is still phenomenal. It's still but, not you know, bad. Yeah. It's still yeah. not bad, but it's, it's certainly not 25 to 10,000. But no. again, like the idea that that would be the history lesson that, that the British people would take away. And, and mm. that was probably the power of Elizabeth behind going, you can do this play, but you are not to criticise the monarchy and you are not to otherwise all chop your head off. Um, you know, it is, it is, uh, still tells you the power of, of, of what was going on, but, his relationship with God is, is so fascinating. So, so, so fascinating. And for me was really the, the turning point in his journey. And, um, and then obviously, you know, he, he, he meets Catherine and marries Catherine. And then, as you say, we hear this terrible, terrible uh, epilogue about, Oh, it was all for nothing and it all went wrong. And, and because 
I I still believe that that was a huge turning point in 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 our in our British history because the shape up the shape of Europe now would just be so different. You know, I know we can say that about anything. We say about Hitler. We can say that about Franz Ferdinand incident. You know, and 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 uh, Kaiser Wilhelm. It, it would all look different if 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 buts and maybes. But I truly believe that was a massive turning point in 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 the history of Europe. Is it was the death at about thirty five years of age of. of of Henry V, I think it was. Um, I think it was massive, massive, and it cannot be undermined. John Dryden criticised Shakespeare's histories, saying they are rather so many chronicles of kings. The business of thirty or forty years cramped into a representation of two hours and a half, which is not to imitate or paint nature, but rather draw her in miniature to look upon her through the wrong end of a perspective and receive her images not only much less but infinitely more imperfect than in life. This, instead of making a play delightful, renders it ridiculous. But delight and ridicule were not at odds for Shakespeare, who throughout his histories has reflected and often pastiched the great events with scenes featuring the comic characters. A.P. Rossiter says, Throughout the histories, it is in the implications of the comic that shrewd realistic thinking about men in politics, in office, in war, in plot, is exposed. Realistic apprehension outrunning the medieval frame, because the Tudor myth system of order, degree, etc. was too rigid, too black and white, too doctrinaire and narrowly moral for Shakespeare's mind. It falsified his fuller experience of men. Consequently, while employing it as a frame, he had to undermine it. We spoke of Shakespeare's use of chiasmus to mirror scenes and major events in our episodes on Henry IV. It was a trademark technique for the playwright, as Harold C. Goddard writes... Shakespeare can never be trusted not to comment on his main plot in his underplot. But Henry V, unlike his fellow kings, has lived on both sides of the mirror. Some of his best friends, he might say, have come from the underplot. And so it's interesting to note that when it comes to his own play, the chief commentary on his actions comes not from the comic characters, but the chorus. The chorus, in the folio version at least, is a meaty role. Only Henry has more lines, though the Archbishop of Canterbury is in joint second. It is a part people have been tempted to imagine Shakespeare playing himself, and it's easy to see why, as the chorus begins with a writerly invocation. Oh, for a muse of fire, that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. The chorus apologises for the inability of his company to sufficiently portray the vasty fields of France and makes frequent pleas to his audience to assist the performers with their imaginations as the action changes from location to location. And so our swift scene flies in motion of no less celerity than that of thought. These regular interruptions, writes Pamela Mason, deny organic development to the drama and require an audience to step back from emotional involvement to gain perspective upon character and event after which an audience might well notice certain discrepancies between the account of the chorus and the events in the play. It is the chorus itself who reminds us to sit and see, minding true things by what their mockeries be. And yet it's claimed that before the invasion of France, honour's thought reigns solely in the breast of every man in England, is plainly disproved by the activities of Bardolf, Pistol and Nim, not to mention the bitter view of war later given by the likes of Williams to the disguised king himself. Here the king sees firsthand that members of his army do not in fact have ironclad faith in him, and yet according to the chorus, every wretch, pining and pale before, beholding him, plucks comfort from his looks, a largesse universal like the sun his liberal eye doth give to every one. Thawing cold fear, that mean and gentle all, behold, as may unworthiness define, a little touch of Harry in the night. 
The chorus presents the Henry of starry-eyed remembrance, a simple hero, a national emblem, nothing like the shifting political creature we have seen evolve over these three plays. Pistol, speaking to the disguised king far more accurately, describes the oppositions within Henry's character. The king's a boarcock and a heart of gold, a lad of life, an imp of fame, of parents good, a fist most valiant. I kiss his dirty shoe, and from heart string, I love the lovely bully. Anne Cagey writes that the two figures in Henry V who are most determined to control how the past is remembered for political ends are Henry and his admiring chorus. Yet even as the chorus strives to fashion our thoughts, the dramatic sequence casts doubt on the choric version of events. In this artfully constructed drama, the baffling inconsistencies between the choric commentary and the dramatic action play an essential part in promoting a theatre of judgement in the face of the strenuous efforts of the king and his chorus to exploit eloquence to influence remembrance. The chorus ends the play with a sonnet that not only reminds its audience of the story of Henry V's son, Henry VI, which had already been told by Shakespeare and his company, but also recalls the notion of England as a garden, one that poorly managed will return to a dirty farm or slobbery. Thus far, with rough and all unable pen, our bending author hath pursued the story. In little room, confining mighty men, mangling by starts the full course of their glory. Small time, but in that small most greatly lived this star of England. Fortune made his sword, by which the world's best garden be achieved. And of it left his son, imperial lord, Henry the Sixth, in infant bands, crowned king of France and England, did this king succeed whose state so many had the managing, that they lost France and made his England bleed, which oft our stage hath shown, and for their sake, in your fair minds let this acceptance take. One of the things I loved about your, your production was the politician in, in Henry, and uh, the, some great moments of staging, the way that you referenced mm -hmm. uh, EU debates had characters. I thought that worked so well, because um, they, you transformed dialogue into dialogue that knowingly had an audience two men mm. talking mm. to each other but also for other characters benefits not just for, obviously for your audience's benefit i thought that worked so well and i noticed that hal you had a an excellent politician's handshake oh, and yes, there were yes. there were there were moments throughout, throughout where i i really felt like I'd, i i wouldn't have been able to say i, I was thinking afterwards who's that reminding me of and I thought of people like Trudeau and a bit of Blair, perhaps, yeah. just here and there. I mean, was firstly, were there any um, politicians in particular that you were you were um, thinking of? And further to that, how much of a conscious, how much of a conversation was there about making how that slightly modern politician, in a sense? Uh, I mean, the 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 two politicians that I looked at were the two that you just mentioned, Trudeau and, and Blair. You're kidding? Yeah, uh, they were really? the two because I felt they were the two charismatic ones that were in, within my adult knowledge to kind of be able to draw mm. on. Um, fascinatingly, we uh, we didn't have the longest rehearsal period. But we weren't certainly we weren't um, short on time, but we had. Um, uh, we had a wonderful uh, movement director, Kate Webster, who <laughs> had this thing on day one. Um, we were really playing around with the physicality of, uh, of of everybody in the play. And it was 
insanely aggressive from the get-go like insanely aggressive from the get-go it was really i think adam here my constable ended up like with like a harry potter type scar on his head from just like butting heads with another actress like it was it was so so physical it was so boisterous the whole vibe and energy of the entire production was just like eight really raucous and i think bless siren sister i did, just didn't know what hit it and i think the theater didn't quite know what had hit it and i don't i think the other cast who came in our last two weeks didn't quite know how to take all of us as people because we were so we were very abrasive but that was kind of because of the nature of what we were doing and what day one of rehearsals was so kate had this thing where she came in and she said i i, I saw these two really drunk um people who both both not English one time on a on a train platform having the most hilarious conversation I've ever heard and it was just two people saying I do your head mate and that was it was them basically threatening each other but with just I do your head mate and so we had this thing going all of the time and and one of the things we played around with was the was beating the other person basically with I do your head mate you know, and, and using just those <laughs> words and and rephrasing them and, and and playing with that. And so that handshake that you reference is a battle between two people going, I'm going to win. No, I'm, yeah, I'm going to win. No, I'm, I, I will. I promise you, I will be the winner at the end of this. And, and, and doing that without saying anything or, and, and, and just playing with that. And then that, you know, whatever, whatever we did there bled into what was going on in the, in the battle sequences and what was going on in the, um, in the betting shop that we set uh, the, you know, the, the, the first scene where you meet Bardolph and Nim and boy and in, and, and it all just stemmed from, from this really kind of um, physical opening to our whole, um, our whole world in this, in this play and, and in every single aspect throughout the production you see these battles taking place. And I think the, the, the one for me that the two or the two examples for me that I think were really interesting were the battle between myself and constable uh, between Henry and constable, which was very, it was quite even. And then the battle between Henry and, and, and the queen of France, that was very uneven at the end, you know, uh, being able to really swan in, we won the war. Mm. You're here to just sell off assets to me so that you can keep your throne uh, for you for now and then my my son or daughter will then sit in your your throne and uh you know the, the the playing around yeah the physicality of those is great but we had you know we had really in-depth sessions when it came to you know how does your character wake up in the morning what's the first thing they do when they wake up in the morning and 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 and, and then how do they how do they how do they you know, respond, how many hours a day did they sleep? How many, you know, all the depths that we kind of really went into in, you know, the RSC get, you know, two and a half months really, but I think sometimes three months to rehearse their, their, their plays. And, and we, you know, we knocked this up in, I think it was, we had four and a half weeks preparing, four and a half weeks playing. We had a very in-depth tech. We had a, you know, four or five day tech in that as well. So we worked at a pace, but we still really worked with the detail. And I, and one of the worries for me sort of in preparing for theatre post COVID is that we may, we may lose the preparation time that we've been blessed with over the, over the years because it costs money. Um, and so mm. 
you know, if one of the schemes that they go for is this this uh, tax relief scheme, then we may not lose that. But I think if we, the danger is that we spend too long in a rehearsal room and we and it costs us uh, money and gets our backs straight up against the wall. So we may see Zoom coming into that world. But the importance of physically being with one another was exactly translated in, in something that you just said there, which was, you know, the, the handshakes or the physicality of me with the podium, you know, I had that podium as quickly as I could possibly get it because I needed, yeah. I needed that thing of, of leaning on. And I liked the idea of him being attached to the podium by a hand, but that was it. The mm-hmm. rest of the time he was out from it. He really wanted to, to command the space and to, and to and to play with that and 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 I I fundamentally believe that he was a super charismatic leader because he's a great leader and I think the Blair for all of his enormous political faults was was such a a charming egotistical idiot that we all bought into him for so long and even you know David Cameron had a had a charm and a charisma that god you know when Theresa may came in just she just did not possess it didn't mean that she she had bad policy and it didn't mean that she was a, a, you know a bad leader in any way it just meant that she couldn't convince people of what needed to be done and uh mm. and that was the inspiration for the queen of france was was Theresa may you know look at somebody that can't oh, really that can't convince people of what needs to be done and and we had great moments where she's sitting down and you had the Dauphin leaning in over her and Orlean leaning in and, and, and Constable leaning in and just the imagery of these three men over this woman, this leader who then just sort of goes, all right, okay, okay, you can take some, you know, soldiers and they get their way. And, and I think that um, that physicality is, is everywhere when it comes to politics, you really see it. And, you know, whether it's Boris Johnson clearly messing up his hair before he goes into a, a press conference so that we all just kind of, you know, have conversations with my family who, who kind of go, oh, I like Boris. And I go, well, what is it that you like about him? <laughs> what is it that you like about him? That he's, he's a bit of an idiot. Like, you know, that's not, we don't want that right now. But that compared to the danger of someone like Farage, who just can't quite, can't quite make us think that he's, you know, fun and, and charming really. And he's a very dangerous man is uh is where Farage I think will never be prime minister you know is he's not Boris he can't do what Boris does and he you know and neither could um neither could Jeremy Corbyn you know just couldn't couldn't charm and so I think it's you know it's it's those figures that we go for so Trudeau and and Blair were just really top of my list and Trudeau it's a man who you know we're talking about Black Lives Matter at the moment. This is a man who regularly blacked up, not just once or twice, regularly black ears and everything. Like, you know, it was so, but had the foresight to, when getting asked about the Black Lives Matter thing, just pause for something like, it wasn't, it was something like 70 seconds before he answered and just went, we all need to do better, basically. And you go, see, that's someone that we can all get behind because I just believe that he gets it. He probably doesn't, but I believe that he just gets it. And it's those, it's the power, I think, that that simple things like that can transmit was that I was I was really after with Henry. But also, interestingly, football managers, the idea of one guy convincing multi-millionaires, multi-multi-millionaires to just go that extra little bit 
just go that extra little bit further. And even, you know, during the coronavirus um, pandemic, we saw uh, Arsenal's manager, who now we had, a, we had a terrible manager at the time, but we had now have this really, again, very charismatic, likeable man convincing these guys that the best thing to do was to take a 30% pay cut to give back to their billionaire owner so that they could save the jobs of other people. You know, that's, that's power. That's, that's real power of, 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 of words and of relatability and, and communication. And I think that it's, it's fascinating when you study these guys like in that way. And that brings us to the end of today's podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, remember to tune back in tomorrow for an extended interview with Aaron. A huge thank you to him for coming on the show. And once again, there's a link to the video of his performance at the barn in the episode description box. Uh, that's all from me for now. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.